Magalhaes to Stokes, who's onside. Wagner. Here's Sims. It's a good serve this from Southampton. They could finish the job here. It's Shane Long, and he has done it. Just a minute to play. A stoppage time. Here's Letizia. Hello and welcome to the Saints FC podcast, episode five. Uh, This time around, uh, Tom and I get the pleasure of interviewing Saints FC legend David Armstrong. And uh, we'll get straight into that uh, just after a a couple of uh, words. Um, We've also got uh, his book, his biography to give away. So stay tuned and listen out for how you can win that at the end of the show. Um, after David, we go and then speak about Southampton's recent form, the losses against Chelsea, Man City and the draw against Hull. Now, we would absolutely love you to get in contact with the podcast. So if you'd like to do that and you're on Twitter, we are at Saints FC Podcast. That's at Saints FC Podcast. And if you would like to contact us via email, that's Saints FC Podcast at gmail.com. Of course, we'd also absolutely love some more of those great reviews that you've been giving us on the iTunes podcast store. So uh, if you'd like to give us some some positive love on there, please get on there, like, subscribe and give us a great rating. Anyway, now on to David. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, absolutely delighted to have David Armstrong on the telephone with myself and Tom. Um, David, hello and thank you very much for joining us uh, on the podcast. Good evening, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. David, let's um, let's just go through some of your um, Southampton stats, perhaps for some of our younger listeners, so they can understand uh, the sort of player that you are. So, you played um, over 400 appearances for Middlesbrough from 1971 to 1981. Then yep. you transferred to Southampton in 1981. At the time, was um, 600,000 pounds, and I think Southampton's record signing. Yeah, I think I, I don't know whether it was a record sign. Yeah, it must have been. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it would have been, yeah, a record signing. And then for the next six, seven years, you played 222 times for Southampton, if my stats are right, and you scored uh, 59 goals mm. um, before uh, you had headed to Bournemouth and then your kind of career ended early, really, with, a, with an injury, um, which yeah. maybe we, we might speak a little bit about later but he also played for England three times and in almost any kind of um, literature or stories I've read about you everyone says that it's um, outrageous that only ever got three appearances for England and uh, every single piece of uh, piece of kind of football writing I've ever read about you has been incredibly complimentary about you so um, also the era that you played for Southampton was arguably Southampton's one of Southampton's best teams and best kind of seasons was um, in 1983 to 1984 when you came second place to Liverpool. Yeah, um, the, the period just before that was quite exciting, which is why I 
joined Southampton in the first place uh, after being at Middlesbrough since I was a nine-year-old. I came through the ranks and the youth teams and there a handful of games in the reserves. And I made my de- debut for Middlesbrough at the age of 17. Um, and when I joined Southampton, it was uh, I could have went to numerous clubs, but the time was right for me to leave Middlesbrough. And I was excited at the fact that Southampton were in Europe. They had people like people you, you'd dream to play alongside Keegan, Shannon, Ball, you know, Stevie Williams and, uh, and the likes of. And also, the, the, very similar in the respect of many clubs at that time, the way they helped the youth develop and come through into the first team ranks. People like Steve Moran and uh, a, bit, a little bit later, Danny Wallace and, and people, and Shearer, of course, and Matt Letizia, and, and, and it's continued in, in, in that rich vein of form uh, as a club to be able to produce and nurture and develop the youngsters that, that do come through. And uh, But for me, the time was absolutely um, phenomenal to be uh, to be here and be a player at Southampton with play alongside Kevin and, and Alan and, and Mickey Shannon and Ivan Gorlach and people like that. I, I, I'm saying that because, and it probably comes across, it was a real, real pleasure as a player to play alongside those sorts of players because the way we played the game was exciting. Players were allowed to express themselves, show people how good they were, and more importantly, send the, the crowd home with a smile on their face. And, and that's what we all did at that particular time. It wasn't when we finished second, because Keegan, Shannon, Ball had done um, just prior to that. But even so, the uh, uh, the reason I joined Southampton was, uh, as I've just said, the the whole place was el- electric. It was it was a you couldn't wait for the next game to come along. It was uh, it was it was like a party atmosphere. Every certainly every home game was, and um, we did entertain. We did express ourselves. We scored lots of goals. We conceded a few as well, but, but uh, at the same time, we uh, we worked hard uh, on the training field, making um, sure that we did quality rather than quantity. And the uh, the players themselves, just as I am, I'm sure we'll all agree, you just couldn't get help but get caught up in it all and really go out there and enjoy yourselves. And, uh, and that's probably why you've heard a few comments from the, the older people who watched us during that time. That uh, that certainly came across, and as a player, I'm I was excited, still am, and you know talk about it very very fondly indeed. Uh, that um, I was very very pleased to join the club at that time. Great, and that is actually kind of one of the um, the questions I wanted to ask you, because at the time um, that you decided to sign for Southampton, mm-hmm. uh, you had a number of other clubs that these days Southampton players leave to go and play for. Also interesting, yeah. you. And, and well, that's right. That? But, but, yeah, I looked at it a little bit deeper than that. I looked at it. Uh, I was brought up with the, the ethic of, as I've just mentioned, uh, enjoying playing the game of football. Uh, I mean, if I was at a club today and I was um, part of a squad and didn't play week in week out, I'd want to. I just wanted to play football, and. Um, yeah, I could have went. I could have went to numerous, numerous clubs, and it was, certainly wasn't about the money. It was about being at a club which had the same values, as far as I was concerned, where we went out and entertained. And um, we, we just uh, after Kevin and and, and Bolly and Sharon went, we just missed out on on 
finishing what is now top of the Premiership. We finished second to Liverpool, which was a fantastic uh, achievement in itself, and uh, got a couple of semi-finals as well, League Cup and FA Cup as well. But um, yeah, just a little bit shorter at that particular time. But the, the way they played the game and the way the crowd enjoyed. I remember coming down to Southampton and playing for Middlesbrough again in Southampton, and I just couldn't believe it. Playing against some of the players I've just already mentioned, that the crowd just loved it, and and they 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 seemed to be enjoying Southampton Football Club and the players that were wearing the jerseys going out there and showing how good they were. And that was one of the reasons I joined Southampton to be a part of a successful club. It, um, all right, in many terms, a provincial club, but the way they play the game was paramount for me to uh, to come in and join in them. David, it's Tom here. Um, Hi, Tom. I, I want to say, I I um, My dad said you were Mr. Consistency. Um, yeah. I don't know if you still follow Saints, but um, he compared you to almost like Stephen Davis, that you know he's always there, always always play well. In your, you know, obviously you worked under Laurent Menemy, and you mentioned you. You uh, obviously with with Kevin Keegan and, and some amazing yeah. players. But what was the you know when you when you finished second? What was the feel around the club? Did you did you were you gutted to miss out or were you just amazed that you were there? How did it how did it sort of feel to come so close? No, well, we're obviously disappointed that we finished second, but at the same time, you got the respect that Liverpool were an exceptional side as well. Uh, we just give them a good run for their money, really, and. Um, we knew we, uh, it's pointless going out on the pitch if you think in, and you feel inferior to the opposition. We felt we could beat any side, certainly at the Dell. The crowd were like a gold star for us every game. We knew it was going to be a party atmosphere. They knew what we could produce. Invariably, we did. And, um, yeah, it was, it was disappointing to finish second, but by no means, you know, it was no mean feat really to, uh, to, to finish second. And of course, um, we would have qualified for for Europe, but it was uh, because of the Heysel situation. We were all the British clubs were uh, prevented from playing in Europe the following year, which was a great, great pity. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's almost a what what could have been if they had that that push on. Unfortunately, Heysel was terrible. Obviously, what what Saints could have gone on to achieve if they had access to European football. Yeah, I mean, uh, we had players who could score goals from anywhere. I, I, I was a predominantly an attacking midfield player who could defend as well. But we had some fantastic players um, all through my career at, 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 at the Dell. So it was um, a, a real a real pleasure to be a part of, of the club as, as it was then because it was uh, Laurie McMenemy put, for me, put Southampton on the map. Obviously, got Kevin, which is a great coup in, in, in signing him. He got, he got a lot of experience uh, uh, within the club who could help nurture and develop those youngsters, as I've already mentioned. And um, and it still goes on today. People like Dave Murrington, who who was part of Laurie's team, uh, looking after the youth team, brought Shearer and um, Matt Latizia and, and, and many, many other high-profile players who've come through the system. And they, they continue to do that. And it's no surprise to me that uh, they still are producing it because... Well, when we were there, um, the, the fact that we were able to attract the people of Shearer, Matt Letizia and Danny Wallace and the Wallace brothers and, and people of that elk to, to the club was testament really to the way we played because they wanted to play the game in the same fashion and, and they, they obviously developed and went on to do that. D- David, I, I wonder if um, 
you can kind of like think back to that era and maybe choose a, a particular um, match or a particular goal that you're involved in or that you scored that you really remember and just take us through it, what you remember <laughs> and what it felt like. Well, there's many memorable goals. Uh, the one that there's a two that stick out. The one that won the goal of the season, where we passed it, uh, playing against Liverpool. It's home. We we passed the ball all the way through from the left back position through midfield. In and I was involved in the early part of the build-up. Uh, the ball was then passed up into the midfield, where Borley had a a lot to say about how he developed the attack. I managed to make a run and help get on the end of things in the opponent's box where the ball eventually came to me and I flicked it over my head um, to Kevin Keegan who then flicked it over to Mickey Shannon and he volleyed it in against Liverpool. It was a, actually at the time it was a very typical Liverpool goal but scored by Southampton against uh, you know Liverpool themselves so it was um, very memorable. Rush and a fine save from the Southampton goalkeeper. Strong back to Holmes, who can well done without it. He's found Keegan. Ah, Cassells to ball. Cassells again. Keegan. Ball. Baker. Keegan. Armstrong. Keegan. Shannon. You won't see a better goal than that this season. That was marvellous. How many players were involved in that build-up? Coming down the left-hand side, such security, such precision in the passing, the kind of build-up that Liverpool themselves might have envied, and when the final touch was needed, Shannon applied it. But the one for me that sticks out, there's two actually, the same game, the one that I... Uh, went to challenge the ball against Manchester United and the ball came to Kevin Keegan who did a fantastic overhead kick and it flew into the far corner but I was given offside um, which was very disappointing. It's supposed to be Kevin's best goal that he hadn't scored. He's never scored but and, and every time I see him he keeps reminding me that I was guilty of the fact that um, prevented him scoring the, the best goal he'd ever scored. Uh, but I, in the end I redeemed myself in the last minute by getting on the end of the ball uh, when Mickey Shannon had the ball controlling in, in, in the uh, Man United's box and I went in in the last minute and just took it off his feet and slid it into the far corner of the net. So it was um, uh, sweet revenge for me in the fact that uh, you know, I was very sorry that I was offside for Kevin's only because I'd challenged the big centre-half initially and I was slow to get up. But um, the fact that I redeemed myself a little bit by scoring the goal in the last minute which got uh, earned us the 3-2 victory actually. Ball, Keegan's off again, taking on McQueen this time, a little dummy, found a yard of space, Shannon looking to be able to turn and United are denying him, Shannon almost got the turn in, Armstrong going in all the way, Armstrong! Um, um, I was going to ask you, obviously you, you work with environment of enemy, um, yeah. My dad uh, said, uh, my dad has a story that he was at the jail once um, as a teenager. And yeah. you, uh, you, you practice, maybe the people used to turn up to the jail out like the games at 3 o'clock. People would just turn up at like 11.30, 12 o'clock, the fans, and just sort of sit there looking at an empty pitch. Um, and <laughs> the players would sort of 
players would sort of come up ten, 10 minutes before the game, warm up and start. But my dad said once that he and his mates snuck down in, uh, sort of into the changing rooms and, and were sort of busted by Laura and Benjamin. And, they, and my dad um, was a policeman, but he said he's never been so afraid of another human being because of this the physical presence of, of Lionel McMenemy. How big an influence was he on, on the team and, and how you played? Well, massive presence, of course. Um, he sold the club to me, Laurie, at, at the time when I, we met up in London. Um, I travelled down from the northeast just before I signed and we met up in London to uh, talk about the club and how much he wanted me. He was selling that he really sold the club to me for exactly just the same reasons that I've already mentioned. Um, the personnel was right, the club was right for me and he, he, for me, he, he, he has got Southampton to where, to where they are, are now in, in, in world football, really, because they're renowned in the Premiership regularly. They've got a good sound uh, footing in all aspects of the game. They've got a great crowd, great nucleus, a connotation of supporters who can come and watch them. They play a good, attractive football. And, um, but for me, he was, a, he, was, he, he was the reason I signed for Southampton. And uh, he's, he's, he's the one that... I know Ted Bates was a very loyal club man. Uh, and he did exceptionally well. Lovely, lovely man, Ted Bates. But for me, Laurie was the one that put Southampton on the map. And he was the reason I signed, uh, I signed for Southampton, most definitely. Uh, obviously, a, a massive presence. A, a great... A great man-manager, I have to say. Because, you, you know, when I played, you have... Keegan, Shannon, Ball, Ivan Golak, Stevie Williams, uh, Dave Watson, and, and, and people like that. Big, people with big egos, and, and, but, and also different temperaments. And for a man to, uh, uh, to be able to manage those sorts of players, he had to do a, a fantastic job, and he did do a fantastic job, because they were all, all different people. What he did do particularly well was made sure that you didn't have any problems off the field, and if you did, he would help sort them out, no matter what they were, uh, to make sure that, uh, because he had faith in how good you were when you were on the field, when your mind was clear, and he, he made sure that he looked after every particular individual the best way he possibly could to make sure that when they, when they were playing, he prepared them particularly well uh, and exceptionally well to make sure that their mind was clear and just totally focus on, on the game ahead, and that's what he did exceptionally well with those sorts of men with those sorts of temperaments. Um, just picking up on the Laurie McMenemy stuff, in your book you mentioned that sometimes training had to fit around race meetings. That, that <laughs> well, sounds yeah, almost it did. unbelievable uh, I mean, I often today. I did mention before that it was all about quality, not quantity. And um, uh, he, full, he knew fully well that Mickey Shannon was well into racing. He knew fully, fully well that Borley and Kevin was interested in racing as well. I'm not saying the training revolved around those three, but... What he did do, he recognised the fact that it, there could be a race meeting on at Salisbury on a uh, on a on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and um, he'd, he'd say, "Well, if you if you put a good stint in and we, we you do what I ask you to do, and you put the quality in, rather than I'm not going to keep you here for three hours because I want to prepare you exactly what I've just mentioned as well. I want you to be prepared for the game the following whenever the following game was, whether it was the uh, uh, the midweek game or, or the or the or the Saturday game, and he would make sure that everybody was happy. And if they put a good shift in, which invariably you you have to, I mean, you, you you can't get away with that. Uh, and and make sure that if that's what you wanted to do outside of the after outside of the game, he would make sure that uh, uh, the training was there. And he'd, he'd cut a fine line 
with regard to time-wise, to get if they wanted to get the Salisbury or something like that. But they invariably performed, and then they we invariably performed and and, and did the did that did the good good work on the Saturday or whenever it would be, and uh, everybody was happy. If we weren't performing it, we weren't getting results. Then obviously, uh, Laurie Laurie could jump down on us, but he had no need to. You're talking about world class players who knew exactly. Uh, Bawley, Shannon, Mickey, but not not so much. But Bawley and Keegan were always at the front of the training, no matter whether they had an 18 year old running next to them or not. They, they would certainly pave the way and show the way to uh, how to conduct themselves in a professional manner. Um, you've mentioned a few players quite a few times now, and I I wonder, um, out of the players you played with at Southampton, who was the one that you most enjoyed playing with? Uh, you couldn't choose one. You couldn't you certainly couldn't choose one. I mean, irrespective of who you played with, they were only as good as the likes of me and the other people who who played an enormous part in in the team ethic, really. Um, so I would, whether it was Middlesbrough, Southampton. Or the brief spell out of Bournemouth, I would never ever choose one individual to say that um, they were the best player I played with. Uh, I can tell you that my most difficult opponent I played against, but certainly the best player I played with, I couldn't do that. Okay, all right. Who's the best player you played against then, to put it that way? <laughs> um, Terry McDermott. He was a fantastic, he's a very similar player to me, and um, whenever I played against Terry, fantastic engine on him and I was a box-to-box player as well um, but I never got the better of him and he never got the better of me when we played against each other and we used to come off off the field absolutely both of us absolutely knackered and I never scored when I played against him and he never scored when I played against when he played against me so in a way we cancelled each other out but we had to work particularly hard to do that against each other um, and I've played against you know the hoddles and the people like that within the game but for me Terry McDermott he's he's been my most difficult opponent okay very interesting um I'm I'm gonna put a um a question to you I don't know have you watched much of Saints in recent seasons have you seen them a bit uh not in the not in the last couple of seasons um prior to that I did a lot a lot of media work um both for the the Saint uh, Power FM before that for Capital Radio uh, and uh, I've done a little bit for Reading Football Club and then Talk Sport as well so I've seen quite a lot what I what I have been impressed with is the way they play the game they they, they are it started with Pochettino actually and he's doing a particularly good job at Tottenham but he got them working as a unit high pressure high up the field uh, enable you, enabling you to, when you win the ball, you, you're, you win it in, in the opposition's half, i.e. in their final third. Um, and that's how I was brought up to play. In, right from my youth team days at Middlesbrough, I was brought up with that. With um, When I got in the side at Middlesbrough, Jack Charlton became the manager, and that's the way he wanted us to play. And we did exception where we had people like Graham Sooners in the side. You probably don't know uh, the re- some of the rest of them, but... Uh, we had a fantastic side at Middlesbrough during that time. I was a young 17, 18-year-old when Jack came along, and um, that was the sort of football I grew up on. So it was a real pleasure for me to watch Southampton do that under Pochettino. And um, 
Um, I'm not a betting man, but I think Southampton at the time before the season started were 2001, and I put a tenner on it. And yeah. uh, I, I did, and uh, um, I went into the bookies, and I don't know, I wouldn't never know how to put a bet on, but I said that that's what I want to do. I want to put ten pound on Southampton winning the Premiership. The fellow looked at me and he says, well, obviously, you, know, you obviously thought there's easy money there. As it was, it was, <laughs> but they weren't that short. They weren't no. that short of, of, of doing like Tottenham are now. Uh, if they only believed themselves and in themselves in what they were doing, um, they would have been in with a shout and probably, you know, well, there would have, there would have been made people sit up and, and realise just how important it is to have a side when they're able to do what Tottenham are doing and what Southampton do. And when they do it well, they're a very, very difficult side to play against because you, you, you're sharp, you're, you're alive. Even if one or two of the players aren't right quite up to scratch, you can identify who they are and swap them out for somebody else. And uh, that was the beauty about when we played. When I was at Middlesbrough and Jack was the manager, we walked away with the second division championship <laughs> in 73-74. We won by 15 points, which was then two points for a win. And the following season, we were in the, the first division, as it is the Premiership now. And Jack, at the time, we, we finished sixth or seventh the following season. But if, if we had done what Nottingham Forest, what Cluffy did at Nottingham Forest, he bought Trevor Francis. I'm not saying buying Trevor Francis, but if Jack had bought somebody of that calibre and that elk, then we would have gone on and done what Nottingham Forest did after us. And it was a great pity that we didn't do, or Jack didn't do that, because we were... We had a fantastic system, fantastic way of playing. Nobody liked to play against us because we wouldn't lie back and accept that, all right, you're playing Arsenal, you're playing Tottenham, you're playing Liverpool, Man United. You obviously got respect for the opposition, but you, uh, you're you not overawed by them and you'll say, well, OK, we know how good you are, but we're going to really test you. And that's that, for me, that's what Southampton do. That's what Tottenham are doing. And it's a real pleasure for me to, uh, when I do watch Southampton, uh, is to see them playing like that. Uh, David, one of the questions uh, we asked uh, another former Middlesbrough and saying who made a lot of appearances, Neil Madison, um, yeah. was sort of, you know, do you, do you kind of wish you'd played the game now? Do you, do you look back and think you'd have been a pro now? Or, or no, not in no, no, I, don't, I wouldn't. Uh, I'm glad I played when I played, to be honest. You heard me mention earlier, it wasn't about the money. It's all about money now. Um, players, I want to, if I want to play, you've heard me say it time time, I want to go out there, show people how good I am, express myself, send them home with a smile on the face. I don't want to be rotated every other game to uh, sit in the stands and or sit in the, on a subs bench. I want to go out there and play. Uh, I went eight seasons without missing a game at Middlesbrough. Eight seasons. Can you imagine that? And um, I played with injuries. And there was times I, I felt I shouldn't have been playing, but the manager wanted to put me in. I went went to the manager a couple of times said, listen, I'm not playing 100%, but he said, no, don't worry, David, you'll play through it. So eight seasons, I, I, I played for one time in Middlesbrough. And um, I just wanted to play the game. You know, my brothers played local football. They didn't have the physios. They didn't have the medical, uh, you know expertise to help them through their injuries and things like that. I felt very fortunate. I didn't play for the money. I just wanted to put, I wanted to go out there, show people how good I was, make people who knew me, friends, family, and the supporters, very proud to say that 
well, David Armstrong was Mr. Consistent. He put in a good shift every time he, he possibly could. He scored goals. He defended quite well. And, um, he, yeah, we, you know, it was a great time. This is what I'm, I'm thinking about the supporters now. It was a great time to be watching either Middlesbrough or Southampton when David played. Oh, that's, that's really, really good to hear, actually. Well, um, one of the things I'd quite like to ask you, and it's a bit of a hypothetical question, but that Saints side um, that you've talked about and that, you know, that pushed Liverpool, mm. got to the yeah. Cup semi-finals. Yeah. How do you think they were doing today's Premier League? Because a lot of people always say, oh, you know, Premier League is much stronger than it has been. But then a lot of Saints fans you speak to talk about that side that you're in has been the best yeah. side they've ever seen at, at, at in Well, we, we, uh, when we finished, when we finished second, we always played with three up front. So we play, we played as uh, a few of the sides are playing now. We played three at the back with the full backs pushed up. It was Mick Mills and Mark Dennis as it was then. And we always played three up front. We had Steve Moran, Frank Worthington and Danny Wallace all the time playing up front. So the opposition couldn't relax at all because when we, when we did win the ball back and we invariably because of the system we played, as they are doing today, we won the, high, the ball high up there, high up the field, or not in our, invariably not in our final third, in defensive third. So when we won it, we they still, they had three to contend with, and not only that, I invariably made runs forward as well. So it was a very, it was a great system to play, um, and full credit to to Laurie for doing it because it was a very positive. Sometimes. The, the, the full-backs had to come back a little bit. And we, when you're pinned against the wall a little bit, when, when you do play against Man United at Old Trafford or, or Liverpool, as it was then, and, 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 and things like that, then you had a back five, more or less. But when you had the opportunity, you tried to push the full-backs up it, it, as, as best you could and made, five, made, made four in midfield. So you played 3-4-3. Three, three. That's what we did. And uh, it was a great system. And, and a lot of teams are doing that now. And all credit to Laurie for doing it. Um, and, and do you think you'd be pushing for European places, pushing for the title? Where do you reckon? Oh, you, without you'd doubt. Be? Yeah, 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 without doubt. I mean, if, I would think if we if we played any of the top sides now, I would say we would definitely uh, win win two or three one. Yeah. Bearing in mind we're all in our sixties now. <laughs> <laughs> no, because we had we had people who could score goals from all over, as I've already mentioned. Stevie Williams great on free kicks. Um, Mark Wright used to come up for, for set players. We had Moran, Frank Worthington, Danny Wallace, who scored was a, you know, a, a great goal machine, a great provider of goals as well and opportunities. Mark Dennis used to get up there and put fantastic crosses in. So we had people who went forward and wanted to get in into the opposition's danger area, and uh, well, that's why we finished second, of course, and uh, and just short of, uh, of getting to a, you know a cup final. And I've got um, one more kind of like question on the old hypothetical uh, moment. Is there any Saints player from the modern era, from the last kind of like maybe three or four seasons, that you would really have loved to have played with? Um, that's a difficult one. I've never really thought of it that way. Um, I would find I would find any any uh, difficulty in any Saints player since I finished to fit into the side that we had of course you always 
when you you look at things through rose-coloured glasses, I suppose. So you uh, and I, you know, I find it difficult to, to bring any name to my mind to to say yes, I would have in, incorporated them. Um, yeah. uh, so I mean, obviously, people like Matty would have would have would have would have. Well, he was a youngster just coming into the side when I when I was there. So. Um, and people like Shearer, of course. So you're talking about world-class players. So if anything, I suppose those two would would it would have been nice to see them in. But where are you going to put them? I mean, that that was a, that was the other thing. Yeah. Hey, just one more. Um, just just what I wanted to ask you really. You you mentioned about 300 odd games you've played without taking yeah. a, a break. Modern yeah. Football. Um, football is you know Southampton in particular this season. They've been playing Thursday, Sunday for a lot of it, and they've had hundreds of, I think, over 150 different changes to the team. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I consider me uh, the nearest person I, I would consider similar to myself would be Frank Lampard in the modern game. Um, but as I've already mentioned, I wouldn't like to sit on the bench. I wouldn't like to be in a squad that was rotated. All of the time, because I'm a great believer in playing your best side. Um, of course, there's times when you have slight knocks. I suppose they've got obviously got bigger squads now as well, and, and I'm talking about you know invariably top quality players as well uh, who they can take people out and put and, and swap over with. But um, from a personal point of view, I, I I just I just want and wanted to play football, and if I wasn't if I was it's not about money. I could be sitting on. The, I could have been sitting on the bench and saying thank you very much. Uh, thanks for paying me. I'll have a nice summer break. But uh, I've never been one of those sorts of people. I want to make sure that uh, I'm in. The, I'm, I'm a footballer. All I want to do is play football. Whether it's you know, if it's not for you and you're rotating me, then I'll go to a club that um, I won't be rotated and I want to play if I'm good enough, of course. Uh, that, that you've got to make sure that you 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 do perform and make sure that you you have a consistent level of performance that warrants you being in the side in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a um a kind of thought which is echoed amongst a few of the ex pros that we've talked about and the, the definitely yeah. that that kind of desire to play which sometimes um I suppose we don't necessarily see the passion on the pitch from from players today or. or yeah, sometimes well, I like I to see it, that. It appear, yeah, it might appear like that, but I'm sure the players, when they are on there, they obviously want to play. Yeah. And I suppose if they're sat on the bench and you see them laughing and joking, if if the side's getting beat, you don't want to see that, of course, either. But it's not their fault they're sat on the bench. As I already said, you've got managers who like to rotate. I personally wouldn't like to play for a manager who rotated. I like to think of a, of a manager who who like who managed Frank Lampard once. They know what he could do. They could put him in the side. Uh, if you give Frank, uh, you know, a chance, he'd, he'd put it away, took it away, and, and win you games. And um, uh, and he was very good at it as well. So uh, yeah, uh, as I've already said, I, I could have went to numerous clubs, but for me, the most attractive club at the time was was going to Southampton, um, who were going were going places and played the game the way I wanted to play it. And if I felt that I wasn't going to play every week, I wouldn't have come. Yeah, it seems like a fair choice to me. Yeah. Um, David, one of the things which um, uh, struck me when I was reading uh, your biography was yeah. um, 
you go into kind of probably more personal detail than I think most footballing kind of biographies, autobiographies go into. And um, yeah. I mean, you had a pretty kind of uh, disastrous uh, career-ending injury and a, and a pretty um, rubbish divorce in terms of finances. What, what was it that kind of you decided to kind of share that with your audience and you know, what well what... Uh, the reason it is uh, the reason i did that was not because of any personal aspects of it all it was it was really saying that this is david armstrong's life from david armstrong's eyes other people see things differently and throughout our lives you'll be the same uh, when you reflect and look back on it you come to a fork in the road and you take one fork and you deal with the circumstances that 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 you because you've taken that side of it, you can't reflect. You can't you can't say, "Oh, I wish I'd gone down the other road." What you've got to do is deal with the things that you encounter on the fork that you've you've chosen. And that's what I was trying to say. I'm not having. To, I wasn't never having. I was really not having to go at anybody, whether it was my ex-wife or or anything like that. And I hope I haven't. You know, I, I, I no, hope people it, don't feel that. It was about really dealing with things and making you strive for everything that you get in life, and you deal with the the uh, the things that confront you. Um, and in my, in my life, it was what you've read about. But in other people, everybody's got these uh, things that they've got to deal with throughout their lives, and and that's what I was trying to put across to people. Uh, you know, I didn't really necessarily want to say it tell them about my personal life but what i was really saying is yeah you'll choose that and you'll come something will happen to make life a little bit difficult and you've got to overcome that and strive for things and you will come through it with the support of your friends and your family it's not nice that things happen like that happen to you of course it isn't but you need if you've got that support behind you then you'll you'll get through things and um you know, you, you you deal with those encounters when they come across. That's what I was saying. And I wasn't really having to go at anybody, to be honest. But um, it's just uh, hopefully a view on, on what does happen throughout the, anybody's life. No, no, it certainly doesn't come across as having a go. It's just um, no. it, it was quite interesting just to kind of, I guess, probably understand more about those aspects of your life than, than perhaps you expect to get i mean i'd say it's probably one of the better fo- footballing biography biographies that i've read occasionally you get ones and it's all yeah, well, about, like it's, it's all that. a bit yeah i'd like to think i'd like to think so yeah um so i suppose kind of one of the things which um which i think it is probably worth kind of asking you about is um going from that kind of superstar football player who was you know playing alongside a uh, european football player of the year made England yeah. appearances, challenging yeah. Liverpool. And then um, after your career-ending injury, things kind of went downhill pretty quickly. What's it yeah. like making that sort of adjustment and, and going from being that, that superstar to just an ordinary bloke with the same sort of issues that everyone else has to deal with? Yeah, well, I always felt I was not an ordinary bloke anyway. I might be a superstar in other people's eyes, but I've never felt like that. Uh, the thing is... Um, it was very difficult uh, because all I ever knew from the age of nine was football. Uh, and I always felt that I'd be uh, uh, somehow 
have a job it's somehow in football coach play coach manager and things like that I've got all the badges I've got all the badges but that injury um, actually prevented me going into becoming a play coach play manager and then fully fledged manager because I'm up there with the Strackens and the Hoddles and the Sam Allardyces and everybody you get a mention of, of that era uh, but unfortunately because of my injury I, I, I uh, was, was disabled and I couldn't physically stand on my leg for any length of time. So that put the block on my future career. In a way, I've stumbled and staggered through my working life since then, to be perfectly honest. Um, I'm glad I have, and I'm still going, and, and, and what have you. But um, it's, it's, been, it's been quite tough. Uh, but like I said to you earlier, and what I hope comes across in the book, is that if you strive and you have that support, from various people throughout who are very close to you, then, um, you know, hopefully you'll come through everything. And, and uh, yeah, as, uh, it hasn't been perfect as far as I'm concerned because I feel I've, I have an awful lot to offer. Uh, with for the game. I had a lot. I, I think it's, it's all gone. It's passed me by now. But I had an awful lot to offer the game. But, uh, unfortunately, um, it never materialised because of the injury, which was a great shame. Yeah, and uh, I think kind of picking up on that, you're your injury kind of really developed into a disability um, yes. throughout your, your mid-30s to late-30s yeah. until you had that successful operation eventually after a few years. Well, that's, yeah, that fused my ankle, uh, but that in itself restricts you what you can do, you know. Yeah. So, um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't... Yeah, of course, I would have liked to have gone on and seen, be, still be involved with the game, which is why I went into the media side. Uh, very fortunate, Peter Hood, who was with... Power FM and Capital Radio. He gave me an opportunity to um, to become a summariser for, for for Power FM and, and Capital for the Southampton games. And um, we went on and we did particularly well. In fact, I seen Peter last week. He's uh, he's still going strong. And uh, and what are you up to these days, then, David? I sell office supplies um, for a local company here in Bishop's uh, Waltham and Eastley. Um, Itching stations, itching stationers limited. Um, I've had a, I've worked for three companies in the in the stationery business. So um, uh, yeah, it's uh, everybody wants paper and envelopes. Um, so as long as that's that's needed, then I'll, I'll still be around and I'll be working working as long as I possibly can. I'm enjoying it. It's it's great. I get out and about, see many people. They reminisce and tell me about the good times. Uh, hopefully, when I played, that's what they're trying to reflect on. Um, but yeah, they—I'm um, enjoying it. It's—it's it's good. I get out and about every day, see all my customers, and uh, have a bit of bit of chat with them, a cup of cup of tea, cup of coffee, and um, hopefully develop businesses, uh, some business from that. Yeah. Tom, have you got any more questions you'd like to ask David before we? No, I, I think we've covered everything. David, thanks for your time. We really, really appreciate it. It's a, it's a... David, thank you very, very much for spending spending the evening with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, anytime. Anytime. Thanks very much. Yeah, David, um, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I took more time than I asked for, um, and I shall be eternally grateful for that. Three in support for South Anthony. If you can look round, they're all a long way away, though. And he has to go up to the line. And Armstrong! Armstrong gets the touch at the near post from Steve Moran. Hi Tom, how's it going? How are you feeling these days? 
Well, last time when we spoke, it was uh, it was happiness, and the last few weeks again, tough one to be a Saints fan. It's it's basically been a bit rubbish, hasn't it? Recently, so um, I think last time we spoke, we we come off the back of um, I think two wins in three games, some pretty good performances, some players looking really good. We we're feeling pretty positive. Um, in fact, we were feeling so positive that um, we predicted that Southampton were probably going to beat Man City at home, oh um, if if not, maybe get a draw with them. Um, we then thought we would have a dramatic effect on the title race by beating uh, Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Yep. And we we didn't even really give a few seconds thoughts for, for what was going to happen to Hull. They were obviously going to be easily easily the, brushed aside at the, St. Mary's. The, they have the worst away record in the Premier League. We will definitely steamroll them is probably where we were coming from. Right, so so fill me in. How, how did that all go then, Tom? Yeah, it's, I'm glad I'm not a betting man, is all I'll say, because... Um, We've gone, we've reverted to type, haven't we? I think you can almost understand, you understand losing against Man City, but again, it's it's the manner. It's like like so many performances this season. It's the manner of the defeat that, that kills you. It's the, it's the hope, as they say, that kills you. And did you manage to watch this game? It was on Sky Sports. Did you? I did. Yeah. I did. And um, I think it, it was kind of fascinating because obviously the game plan... Well, what it appeared to be for me is that the game plan was we'll stop Man City scoring and we'll hit him on the break. Um, I'm pretty sure Aguero is the best striker in the Premier League, where, you know, in terms of just pure delivering goals. So the idea that we can stop him and Sane and Silva and Torre, all these incredibly talented players, if that's our game plan, is to stop, hope that all those players don't score, then we need a new game plan. Yeah, that I mean that definitely didn't work. I I remember going into um, I was uh, out on a trip out with my wife, and um, we'd been riding the tandem around, and we we were down in a Dorset uh, coastal town. Went into the pub, watched the game, and I think we were, it was nil nil when this guy kind of walked in and stood next to the table uh, where I was sat watching the game. And it just went from bad to worse, almost from the moment he walked in. And his wife found this incredibly amusing. She was there going, this always happens when you watch the Saints. Blah, 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 blah. And he, he was just swearing so loudly and he was absolutely devastated. And and I think maybe going into that match, we were all feeling quite optimistic and it was just a sudden you know, realisation, oh, we haven't quite turned the corner that we thought we, we had. Um Sorry, then, then we head off to Stamford Bridge. Full of optimism, I think still... Still still feeling optimistic? Feeling okay. romantic. Yeah, we, there's there's something, there's the magic of a midweek game under the lights. A couple of good uh, results as well, last, you know, last two or three seasons away at Chelsea. Yeah. So why not again? And then Hazard scores within five minutes of the game starting. What are you thinking at this point? It's amazing, isn't it, that you you think that what they would say is just keep close to Hazard. Don't let him shoot from in and around the area. And within five minutes, he's got the ball virtually free to stroke the ball home from you know, between the penalty spot on the edge of the area. And I've got to say that all my hope that was built up over the previous fixtures and optimism at this point completely evaporated. And I was thinking... How, how bad is this going to get? 
you know, once Man City got ahead of us at St Mary's, they they then kind of like ran away with it. How bad is this going to be? Be going to get? And I was wrong, and we were back into it. It's pretty, you know, we we were suddenly kind of back into the game. Um, we have a good goal from Romeo scoring against his old club. Um, well, I say good goal. Kind of hit him. Yeah. It, 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 it went in the back of the net. You know, this is, this is a good enough goal. It's at Stamford Bridge. And suddenly you're thinking, oh, you know, Saints are looking quite fired up. The first half goes and, and we're looking very competitive against Chelsea. And um, what, what are you thinking at this point? Get to half time. Get to half Get time. Get to half time. Make the crowd doubt themselves a little bit. And, you know, you start the second half on level pegging. But what happened, John? Um, so just before half time, I think we decided to concede a goal. Yeah. Yeah. And a real sucker punch or yeah. a goal as well. So that was um, Cahill's header. Hey, Cahill and Jagielka are probably two of the top scoring players in the Premier League this year. But what's gone very strange? <laughs> um, then it's 2 1. Then we get into the second half and Chelsea is starting to look like the the title elect that they are. Yeah, I think I think Saints Saints struggled, didn't they? They've got such good movement and Costa is uh unplayable. I I think we saw that earlier this season at St Mary's where Saints in the game at home against Chelsea had given a lot of teams a good game and I think the first time you saw them really get turned over this season, I think was we lost was it three nil at home to Chelsea? Two nil at home to Chelsea. Um and Costa just did it again. You know, the guy who hasn't scored in five games just muscled us and destroyed us. Yeah, and and that was it the um was it the last goal which was the fantastic interchange between yeah, the well, Chelsea players that Yeah, the the sort of one touch football. Yeah. Um it, it's frustrating because they just don't get close to these players and Costa seems to have all the time in the world. Um I think it exposed maybe for one of the first, well, not the first time, but it really exposed the sort of centre back pairing, something we'll probably come come on to. Yeah. Um we ended up getting a consolation. It it finished four two. I was happy for Ryan Bertrand to get a goal against his club. Um really it was a um you know not a particularly meaningful goal at the time, but I think perhaps four two reflected the the kind of efforts that we put in in the first half and the fact that at certain points of the game we did actually look like we were we could get a result against Chelsea rather than a four one which you know, suggests that that you've just been battered but I came out of that game feeling better about that one than I did about the Man City game at St Mary certainly I felt like we had a bit of fights we had a bit of attitude and ultimately we were beaten by a better side yeah I think the three nil I think Saints, to sort of dip back into the Man City, I think Saints gave Man City a good game for 60 minutes. I think that we were lucky against Man City in terms of they did get behind us a lot. We've got two very fast fullbacks ourselves, but Sane and Silva and, and the, the players of that, you know, they really pull the strings, don't they? And I think you saw Saints. How many times did Stevens clear it you know, from a cross that was coming in and Stevens is always in the right place? It was only a matter of time. Before they they got they got lucky, and I think you did feel quite optimistic up against that point. And I think, but you know, they, they, they fell to pieces a little bit. But the Chelsea game, you know, hey, losing four two at Chelsea is no great disaster in the grand scheme of things. And and of course they'd beaten Tottenham four two just a few days before, hadn't they? Yeah, and, and they're, they're a top top good. team. 
Yeah. You know, Chelsea are, the, are by far and away the best team in this league. So, Man City, fairly disappointing. Chelsea, a little bit disappointing. Roll on Hull City. Let's get three points in the bag. One of the worst away teams in the league. I was going to send you an article in The Guardian. I didn't, which was how Hull and Burnley are the two west, worst away records in the league. And between them, they got four points that day. Yeah. Was was that the Guardian's fault? Because I think Southampton, we have a knack of allowing teams to break their hoodoos. We, we just, whenever you see like, oh, this team hasn't won away. This bloke um, hasn't scored in three months. Yeah, you know, it's we're we're always the willing accomplice in uh, ending these disastrous runs for other people and other other teams. And Hull City, they they got a point against us. They've taken four point. Uh, they've taken four points off us this season. I think you look back at where this season has gone wrong. It's weird because I don't think we've beaten a team in the top six all season. No, else in the in the league we certainly haven't. Yeah, we have in the league cup. But yes, not, yeah. Um, but we've also dropped a lot of points. It's kind of weird how we are where we are because we seem to have dropped a lot of points against teams at the bottom. Yeah, we lost um, away at Palace, lost away at Burnley, lost away at Hull. Um, we've just not turned it on against teams that under maybe previous um, managerial regimes, we were we were turning over. You know, we were doing the professional job of going to, away to Hull and beating teams um, and looking at the results we had. You know, we lost away at Swansea. Um, this uh, It's all hypotheticals. If we'd have got two wins there, you know, we'd be looking at being in comfortably in eighth and all of a sudden the season looks a lot different, I think, in terms of what success looks like. And it's interesting as well because I, I think this season we could still finish in eighth. There's like a fairly reasonable chance that that could happen. But West Brom, so they're three points ahead of us. However, we're sat in ninth and you drop all the way down to 16th and Crystal Palace are just a mere three points behind us. So we probably have as much chance of finishing in 8th as we do as finishing in 16th. And it's interesting. It, it, it's such a fine margin. It's it's one loss that you turn into a win. And it's it's the difference between a season that makes people say, well, that's very respectable. And a season that, you know, I think finishing 16th in the Premier League would be completely unacceptable for Southampton based on, on the recent form that we've had. Yeah, I, I think we're very lucky. Um and I know this contrasts ridiculously with how optimistic we were when we spoke uh, previously. We've, I think we're quite lucky to not get dragged into a relegation dogfight. And if you look at the games we've got left, um, as inconsistent as we are, uh, you know, finish the, se- finish the season with Stoke at home. Well, our home form is the third, well, in terms of goal score, the third worst in the league. Um, there's no guarantees that we, we're going to beat teams like they were in the last few years. And I... I think we're very lucky to to not be in a, if not a relegation dogfight, then certainly in the places immediately above it. Yeah. But ultimately, that that is it. Could, uh, there's never really been a huge worry about relegation this season, but it is quite conceivable that we will finish just above the relegation places. It's also quite conceivable that we could finish in eighth. 
yeah, I don't. I think the t- I think the games we've got to play. Well, we got Liverpool away, Man United, uh, Arsenal. Stoke, Arsenal. Um, you know, is yes, we could maybe get nine points from those four. We could also get zero points. Um, I think they they look lost. I think against Hull, they look lost. They look like a team without a plan. Uh, they look like a team that they put a load of attacking players on. Um, we'll come to Buffal uh, later on. But they don't really look like their team that with belief. Okay. So, at this point of the programme, I think we're going to go into a little bit of debate here. Claude Puel. In 30 seconds, Tom, make your case as to why you think Puel should be sacked. I think he's lost the dressing room. I think he's turned a team of exciting, attacking, innovative players into a team that looks lost, that looks lacking belief, um, and that looks like they don't want to be there anymore. There's there's rumours today in the paper of bu- training ground bust-ups. I think what you're seeing is the uh, the slow but inevitable moving out of Claude Puel. And I've got to say, whilst we've had some great memories, we went to Wembley, it was fantastic. I went, you know, we went to Milan, it was brilliant. I don't think many Saints fans will, will miss him. Okay, so I'm going to put in the defence for Claude Puel. This season, uh, he came in, um, like many of the other seasons before, we lost players, we had regime change that we weren't expecting. Uh, we did have an awful lot of games for Southampton, you know, certainly. Um, he was trying to get to know the squad. He had a few new signings. He's had some big injury issues, you know. Um, Buffal, his star signing, came in basically injured. Van Dyke, our star player, has uh, spent half the season injured. Um, Shane Long, who was looking like the greatest striker in the Premier League for the last kind of half of the last season, he was just absolutely unplayable, has been fairly hopeless this season, I think we could all agree on. Uh, Jay Rodriguez has not made it you know, back up to the... To the kind of established striker that we want. Charlie Austin, this kind of uh, relief that we're going to get from a striker has been fairly useless. He's had to rotate the, the the squad. He's taken him a long time to kind of get the players clicking together. And we've seen moments that would suggest that he's worth holding on to, like getting into the cup final, like beating Inter Milan, like beating Arsenal, like beating Liverpool, that I think maybe we should be giving him another season. I, My heart says, yeah, I'd like to see the guy... But my problem is, is we have to be realistic about what football is now. Football is a you get a season. We at the end of the season, unless we, I mean, maybe the players are behind him. I fear they're not. I think when you saw on Saturday, Redmond be dropped, and now you're seeing today they had a bust up on the training ground. Ward Prowse wasn't playing. Ward Prowse arguably been our probably most consistent performer the second half of the season. It just it strikes me as weird, and my my fear is that. We lose a one big name player, and we think we all, we all know that if Van Dyke goes, it, it could be very very bad. And you know we could see another exodus. We could see Bertrand go. We see you know Van Dyke goes. Tadic Tadic, however you want to pronounce his name, could go. We could lose a lot of players again, and the the struggle for renewal might be just one step too far. It's it's concerning, isn't it? Because. I don't think you'd be kidding anyone if you said that 
I mean, the Southampton side of this season wouldn't be the Southampton side of last season if, in a straight race. And in fact, the two seasons we had under Cumin were better than we've been this season. The two f- full seasons we had under Pochettino were better than this season. Arguably, you could say that Nigel Atkins kind of half of the Premier League season that he had and, and the, that transition season from you know, the season after the Championship. Would they beat us this season? Or, or has the, have we seen kind of four years of consistent progress come back down this season? They look like they lack energy, which is what I don't say. They almost look more tired now than when they were playing Thursday, Sunday. And I, I my worry is that, yes, he's had some very bad injuries, He's also made some really baffling decisions. Uh, not He doesn't seem to know who his best team is, particularly up front. We've had very bad luck with Charlie Austin's injury, and then we were unlucky with uh, Gabby Dini's injury. But, you know, chopping and changing between Rodriguez and Long, there doesn't seem to be a plan there. Saturday, just dropping in Buffal. Uh, you know, Buffal's not fit. He's frustrated. He is frustrating. We didn't have another centre-back Everyone knew Fonte was going to go, so we were only one injury away from having no established first-team centre-back available. It just seems to be the lack of plan that, mm. that's, that's driven me mad. And I, I don't know what you think about where we go from here, but I wonder what your thoughts are on whether it's his fault or whether there are sort of bigger forces at play in terms of, I know we speak about the takeover, but whether the club's taking them off the ball a little bit. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about this. It, it it seems kind of it seems concerning. I, I think if you if you look at the last I don't know ever since the Lieber family got involved in the club, it's been pretty good. Um, you know, even the the season when we started on League One with minus ten points and had a fairly good season. Ever ever since that moment, it's just it's been a really good time to be a Saints fan. I think you know whether it was kind of getting promoted from League One, winning the Johnson's Paints Trophy, whether it was getting promoted from the Championship, establishing ourselves in the Premier League, um, getting one of the most exciting young European managers as was such a coup. And it is quite interesting that Southampton managed to get Adkins, got a double promotion. Getting Pochettino, who is proving himself to be one of the best managers in the world right now. Bringing Ronald Koeman, who, although occasionally he had a bit of wobble in form, on the day, Saints, on their best day, Saints just looked absolutely unstoppable. And signed some great players as well. Yeah. And Claude Puel hasn't... This season's not going to be looked back on as being like a really wonderful season. I think like... The, the kind of fear factor that you might get from playing Southampton or the kind of worry that you think, oh, you know, we've got to watch out for this side. They could do a job against us. I think maybe our reputation from the last few seasons has, has kind of helped us keep that, that reputation a bit, but it's not going to be very long before people realise that, okay, we're, we're actually, we're not the best of the rest. We are just in amongst the rest. I think it says a lot about the poor quality of the Premier League, doesn't it, this season? Um, I think on match of the day, you know, we were first on match of the day on Saturday, and it was the first time they'd had a nil-nil uh, in years um, as as the first game. There was what like two goals on Saturday, and okay, that's just one day. But 
the if you look at the fact that we are ninth um, and West Brom are eighth, what does that tell you about the teams that occupy the eighth to twentieth spots in the Premier League? They are pretty poor, um, and I just this sort of best league in the world. I just can't, I'm just not living up to that billing. And I think Saints are almost symptomatic of that. Maybe we just have the best top six in the world. Yeah, that's a great claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah I I mean I understand about why a lot of people are asking for Puel to be out I think perhaps it would be unfair to get rid of him after just one season he's but a bit he reminds me of like Gordon Brown doesn't he like you know he's just not a good communicator <laughs> like no doubt he's a very capable man but the problem is Saints fans and like all fans they want to see anger they want to see passion and he you know, on Saturday he came out and he said, well, I'm as angry as the fans. It's like, well, there's a lot of people in that stadium who don't have anywhere near as much money as him. And a lot of people spend a significant portion of their income. That is, you know, that on, on going to watch that team at home and away. Um, and And they're not, trust me, like, he's not as angry as those people. He's not. No. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things, I, I think probably, if Pure got sacked at the end of the season, would I be upset? No. I don't. Would I be worried about players leaving like I was worried about Koeman? No. No. If anything, it might help us keep players. Yeah. And I, I suppose maybe that's one of the key questions. If you look at um, the squad that we've got at the moment, you say, Van Dyke, really, really key player. But people like Bertrand, like Romeo, um, yeah, uh, you you, you want to keep those players Cedric. together, yeah. You know, we've got to go. If we if we lose a Cedric, we've got to go go and find another, you know, another fullback that's won a European, won the European Championships. I ain't gonna be able to do that. Yeah, I can hardly see Cuco Martina cutting it at, at that level. Who? He scored that wonder goal against yeah, Arsenal. Yeah, he did. That, 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 it. That's it. That's right. Okay. Answer. So. Rumours of the takeover from this Chinese chap, currently under investigation for fraud, was it? So some people say he says he's not. Um, I don't know. I'm incredibly wary of this Chinese influx of money into football. I just, like, I don't think anyone could show me a club where it's actually worked out well. Uh, I've What I've read about China and the money is just it's a house of cards. It, it alarms me greatly um and i think we risk you know they'll try and make a product and they'll try and like that do it whole tigers you know yeah we'll become like the southampton change Saints. the color of our, t- our kit well no we might we'll keep red because red is good yeah, luck good, isn't good it luck in China, China, yeah. so they might that's the one probably one of the reasons they might want to buy us um but i just I maybe they'll I'm get rid of the white stripes f- oh god i'm just fearful it just doesn't fill me with confidence I mean, obviously, we know that Katrina Lieber, Ralph Kruger, and, and uh, you know the Southampton board are regular listeners to the podcast. Is the message that we're sending out maybe steer clear of of this particular uh, Lander Sports, whatever they're called? I see their dilemma, aren't they? Because if you're, I, I imagine that Katrina does love the club. You know, I don't doubt that for one minute. You know, they, they she puts heart and soul into it. They put their own family money into it. I don't doubt that for one minute. And their challenge is they probably know they haven't got enough money to take us to the next level. 
um, is which it, is maybe Champions isn't she League one podcast. of the most wealthy owners yeah, in the Premier League? But I, I just chuck money at it. Yeah. Not, she's not an Abramovich, uh, and it, it depends on they want to run the club sustainably, and they, yeah, they probably can't do that with the funds yeah. they've got. I I wonder if it's possible to run a club sustainably and really, really compete at the top level. A, a club like Southampton, I think maybe if you're Liverpool. Or if you're Manchester United and you've got that enormous fan base that you can draw on and generate an awful lot of revenue from, then there's an argument that it could be a sustainable business. I think for a club like Southampton, there's this kind of... On one side, you think it would be really great if we pushed to the next level, got a Champions League qualification or were were challenging um, for a title or for trophies, which would take a significant investment. But if it all went wrong, look at Leeds United. They had a, a couple of great seasons in the early days of the Premier League. Um, they were they got to the Champions League quarterfinals or semifinals, and now you know they're missing out on promotion yet again in the Championship. And and my worry is is that if we sold almost to anyone apart from the Lieber family, who I think have done very very well in running the club in this kind of sustainable maybe sometimes slightly infuriating manner but overall pretty successful manner that we'd maybe have an explosion of of excitement and new players coming in and it's all the kind of stuff that a fan would want to do or or see but then ultimately would would go wrong in the long run Uh, football's mad isn't it i mean you work for a big organization i work for a big organization they would never run themselves in the way football runs itself. I mean, I read at the weekend that Sunderland, 78% of Sunderland's turnover goes on wages. And Sunderland are the worst team to play in the Premier League for a number of years. And they are spending a fortune on wages. I do, you, you do want to take it back to basics almost, but you can't. It's such a, you know, you need to constantly improve. Like any business, it needs to show growth year on year. Um, and it's a pretty unforgiving place my my concern is do you sell to someone who is there now or do you wait for the right person to come along and i have big concerns about um like say the chinese investment and whether whether it can really be um trusted in terms of the long term and do they have the long-term interest of the club at heart i'm not sure they do yeah i so we'll stay clear on that bust ups on the training pitch what have you heard tom I've heard what I've read in the Incredible Daily Star, which obviously is uh, the world's greatest newspaper. So for those of us that don't read the world's greatest newspaper, um, can you tell us what, what, what did it say? What I would say in defence of the Daily Star here is this was... This, 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 is, this, this is not a de- debate on the, the merit of the Daily Star. We just want to know what it says. No, but it was a well. It was an article that had a number of nuances. So okay. it wasn't... So apparently Bertrand and Redmond have had a bust up on the training ground with Claude Puel, which is why Redmond didn't play on Saturday against Hull, uh, and that a number of the players at the club are considering their future, including Van Dyke, if Puel stays, because they're frustrated with his style. Shane Long is apparently amongst the players who's frustrated. He feels he's not been given a fair shake. Claude Puel said at the game on Saturday, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Shane Long's future at the club at the end of the season. So there's obviously no love lost there um whether it's true or not i don't know but it, it does seem to be the sort of 
sort of positioning, House of Cards style positioning of the end of Claude Puel. Okay, so we maybe think that Puel is going to be out of the club, nudged out of the club. Apparently he had a bust up with Tadic, Tadic. Um, You know, the body language of the players doesn't suggest they're putting their body on the line to play for him, does it? And I suppose what's interesting is you look at the commitment that the players put in in that cup final against Man United and suddenly there was a real wave of optimism. Hang on a second, this is quite good. You know, the the, the players were playing well, they were fighting for it. We haven't seen that in the same way, have we, since then? It's it's obvious. I don't know whether he's... The FA, I imagine the final motivated the players by itself. You know, a lot of those players know that they're not going to win a huge number of things in their careers, probably. Um, this was the chance to win something and go down in history. That motivates them. I, you know, to paraphrase, can they do it in a wet weekend? Wet Tuesday night on Stoke. Can they do it at home against Hull in a dead rubber? Um, and it just didn't look like they could. They just didn't look inspired or motivated enough. Um, yeah. Right. So next up, we've got Liverpool on Sunday at Anfield. We've already beaten them at Anfield this season. Absolutely. What's going to happen, Tom? Uh, we'll, we'll lose yeah and I think we could lose quite badly um, Coutinho will play it's uh, under English law Coutinho has to score against us that's the law if not uh, players will be arrested was it the Europeans that brought that in it's possibly time to do a Brexit but either way he's going to score and he, he's going to score from more than 20 yards because that's what he always does against us ok so we're going to lose to Liverpool then a few days later we are hosting Arsenal at St Mary's. Which we're going to. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Who knows what Arsenal will turn up? Who knows what Saints team will turn up? Who knows if either team's going to turn up? God knows. I mean, we could we could beat them, but then again, we could lose 3 or 4-0. Um, and what was the score last time we played Arsenal at St Mary's? Uh, was that the great Shane Long kicking the back of... Um, uh, kicking the centre back in the back of the legs when we won four one was it last Christmas Christmas four last it was much worse than that it was in the FA Cup oh we lost like six now or something horrendous. I think it was five that was so grim so we went from beating Arsenal at St Mary's four nil to losing putting out a team of kids yeah, and then getting five nil getting a spanking um, I've seen us beat Arsenal already this season at the Emirates that was really good fun what are your thoughts. I think we've got more chance of beating Arsenal than I think we've got of beating Liverpool. Hell yeah. Our home form has been pretty dire this season. So, who who knows? Who knows what will happen? Hopefully we'll be playing against an abject Arsenal and we can somehow get a get a victory there. An abject Arsenal who have nothing to play for. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah we're definitely coming into that nothing to play for time. Um, then we've got Middlesbrough away a few days after that. You know, Middlesbrough, the problem we've got, Middlesbrough could be fighting to stay in the Premier League. They had a good yeah. result against Man City at the weekend. They could be fighting. They could, you know, it could be down to sort of six, seven points between them and Hull. Right. So so, so let, let's call this. Let's call the rest of the season. So Liverpool, we're going to lose. Hell yeah. Southampton uh, against Arsenal. I would say we'll lose. Lose again. Southampton against Middlesbrough at the draw. Draw. Southampton at home to Man United. Win. I'm going for that. We own one. Win. And Southampton at home to Stoke City. I think we'll draw that. Just so a classic end of season. Nothing going for either club. 
So we got five points. Five points from five games, which puts us, which unless... 45, 46 points. 46, unless West Brom have a complete meltdown and lose. Actually, you know, they could do. They could lose three of their last five or four games or however many they've got left, um, which puts us equal with them, but with a better goal difference, um, you'd assume. Um, yeah. It, 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 the weird thing is, isn't it, with football, we're so spoiled. I think it's something we keep going back to. I certainly keep going back to the eighth and a, and a cup final seems like failure. And really, like, you have to kick yourself and think, like, five years ago, we were in the championship. Yeah. Does it seem like... I mean, I don't know. We are spoiled, but at the same time, again, it's not the... It's almost the manner in which they play, which is what kills you rather than the actual result. Uh, and, and I think that's probably the, the key reason why, even though I think Puel should maybe be given a bit more time, I wouldn't necessarily be that upset to see him go. Um, so there we have it we're going to finish the season on 46 points probably around about 10th I reckon with, with that points tally I'd agree with that so we have 10th we'd have yeah, had a couple of interesting results in the Europa League but ultimately a, a fraught campaign and um, an EFL Cup final yeah I mean there's some great memories there there are um, you know where at the San Siro being uh, Van Dyke single-handedly beating Inter Milan at home, um, and then obviously, like you say, the EFL final. But I think it'll be a season. Maybe I'm being premature here, but it'll be a season remembered for the frustration. Yeah. And well, th- I'll tell you what, Tom. We've said what we think is going to happen. Let's pick this up in our next episode. Uh, I think we'll probably be looking around about the end of the season at that point, and, yeah. and, and we'll do an end of season review. Um, just, I suppose, um, a few words as well. I think we should talk about David Armstrong just for a few minutes because we, we spoke to him earlier this evening. And um, what what did you make of David Armstrong? I think um, you we were, you know we spoke about Bufal me and you earlier. We, we spoke about Tadic about the frustrating players. These are play, these players that earn more in a week easily. Than probably um, David Armstrong did in two years, three years maybe, um, at Saints. Uh, because it drives you mad. Like David Armstrong played, as he said, over three hundred games in a row and never missed a game for Middlesbrough. He then played like two hundred twenty odd games for Saints. Like we've his humility and his humble nature and his down to earth and his uh, magnanimous nature you know he had a terrible injury that cut not cut short his career by many years but certainly led to long-term health problems but you know he seemed to have more passion and more fire in his belly than what it appears that a lot of the current crop of players do who are vastly better remunerated than, than he ever is and he just seemed like a really normal guy and I wonder if if our kids in 20 years time are doing a podcast and they're speaking to any of the current players. Would they, you know, maybe get any, even one ounce of the humility that that we've had from David Armstrong? I'm not sure they would. I really wonder about that. In fact, would any of the um, players that are playing today be willing to do podcasts of the future? Kiko Martina would. He'd be. He'd just love to be asked. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I worry about the players. Like on Sunday, um, I, I, this is another kind of point but I worry about like on Sunday Charlie Austin is posting on his Twitter feed he's in Dublin 
on 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 the lash. Like they should be mindful of what this looks like. So it's already a point about how much the fans spend on following these players that frustrate them. I know Charlie Austin has not been playing, and of course, it's his day off. He's entitled to do whatever he likes. Um, but they should be mindful of of how it looks. And Charlie Austin is meant to be coming back to fitness. He shouldn't be in Dublin with Ricky the Hitman Han, which, according to his Twitter feed, he was. You know, you should, he should be training. We should be. If he is in Dublin, just don't tell anyone. Yeah, it's frustrating, isn't it? Because perhaps the reason why many of us Saints fans cannot afford to be on the piss in Dublin on any given Saturday or Sunday is because we've invested so much money in uh, filling the bank accounts of uh, of the people that we go and support every week or so. It drives them mad. I, mean, I think like Tadic's attitude with the penalty... It, it, it's symptomatic of a sort of malaise and, and like Tadic takes that penalty why is no one at the club saying look with all due respect you've scored five penalties out of eight that's a pretty shoddy record you don't ever look confident when I, taking uh, a especially penalty especially for Southampton we just don't accept failure on penalties do we, we you should either be Ricky Lambert or Matthew Leticia yeah it, it just I, I think there's an attitude thing at Saints right Tom we're both getting really annoyed with this chat. so um, anyway, thank you very much for hanging on in there with us, uh, listeners. If you haven't already <laughs> switched off out of a uh, uh, frustration at thinking about how Southampton are getting on, um, we really hope you enjoyed the interview with David Armstrong. We certainly enjoyed speaking to him. I'd thoroughly recommend getting out there um, to buy his book. But um, we have been very lucky in the fact that we've been given a copy of David Armstrong's um, book to give away. And I don't know. Do, do you think we need some sort of question here, or, or we, do people just need to get in contact with us? I would. I, would, I don't think you can make it a free for all because people should work for their free David Armstrong. But you could. I mean, you had a, a question earlier about which Saints player would current Saints player would do a podcast and why. Maybe the best uh, best response to. I don't know. So work something out. Well, how about we put it at uh, this, listeners? So uh, we have. Um, an email account it's saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com that is saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com write to us tell us something funny tell us something about the saints tell us about the maybe the southampton uh ex-player that you'd most love to hear on the podcast in the future um if you would rather tweet us you can do that i think at saintsfcpodcast um on twitter and um We'll get back to you. We'll have some more details about the competition and the winner uh, on Twitter and maybe in the in the next episode as well. But really great read. Um, very grateful for uh, David Armstrong's publishers for providing that for us. And, and um, hopefully uh, one of you lucky listeners out there will get a chance to read it as well. And I promise we'll be more upbeat next time. Well, presuming we win some games. Yeah. Oh, God. Right. Anyway. Uh, that's good night from me. And uh, thanks for that's good night from me. Thanks everyone. Cheerio. Bye bye. Bye bye.